I will start by reading from Rays of the One Light, Weekly Commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita by Swami Kriyananda. Topic from Palm Sunday. Who is the Son of Man? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. On Palm Sunday, the throng joyfully acclaimed Jesus Christ as he entered Jerusalem, casting palm fronds before him and singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord bless the King of Israel. John 12, verse 13. Jesus Christ had told the people, the Son of Man must be lifted up. His reference, so we are told, was to the mode of his impending crucifixion. Some persons on that occasion had asked, Who is this Son of Man? Was Jesus a human being merely? Those who on Palm Sunday called him King little realized the actual nature of his kingdom. He was far more than what they imagined. Yes, of course, he ate, drank, walked, slept, and talked like others. His consciousness, however, was centered in infinity. Yes, again, he laughed like others, but his laughter, laughter expressed divine joy, not mere merriment. Again, he wept like them, but never with human grief. The tears he shed were for the sufferings of unenlightened human beings. Never were they shed in self-pity. Jesus Christ was wakeful in God. Most people, by contrast, are asleep spiritually. How strange to reflect that less than a week from the entry into Jerusalem, so joyfully acclaimed, he would be arrested, condemned, and crucified. Such is the bitter sweetness of human existence. Smiles of welcome one day, insults, even persecution the next. How few realize that Christ's suffering would not be for himself, but for people's ignorance for those who had not yet understood the deeper reality that dwelt also in them. Everyone is born trailing clouds of glory, as the poet 
Wordsworth put it, Even the meanest beggar has lived a story or will eventually have lived it, more magnificent than the greatest epic ever written. In the Bhagavad Gita, this dichotomy between the Son of Man and the inner Son of God is beautifully described. Sri Krishna, representing God in human form, reveals his nat- true nature in infinity. In the 11th chapter of that great scripture, his chief disciple Arjuna exclaims, O infinite light, thy radiance spreading o'er the universe shines into the very darkest abyss. Thy voice overwhelms the roar of cosmic cataclysms. Lo, the myriad stars are thy diadem. The scepter radiates power everywhere. O immortal Brahman, Lord of all, again and again, at thy feet of infinity, I lie in prostration before thee. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Many of our singers from the Ananda Music Ministry are here today also. I just want to thank them for the beautiful concert Friday night, uh, Swami Kriyananda's Oratorio, Christ Lives. And uh, if you're watching this live online and you're within 45 minutes of Ananda Palo Alto, I suggest that you turn us off right now uh, and, and go to the concert there and you can watch us on recording later. I'd like to share with you a reading from Whispers from Eternity by Paramahansa Yogananda. This is, Make me see that I am but an actor in thy cosmic motion picture. Beholding the ever-changing sound and motion pictures of life, I am aware that this turbulent dancing show is only a vast illusion. The tragedies, comedies, and paradoxes of life, the dreams of birth and death, the changing scenes and places that surge around us. All of these are nothing but movies designed to engage us in the cosmic illusion. O divine operator, with thy cosmic vibratory light, thou dost show us ever new thrills, a motion picture true to all our five senses, keeping us amused and entertained through sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. O magic operator, thy true-seeming spectacle beams daily onto the screens of our consciousness. I take it as thy grace that I've been chosen to play both tragic and comic parts in thy drama. I am happy to have acted all those parts, both of sorrow and of joy. Still, Father, give me now and then a few days of respite from my task. (laughs) 
Let me retire to my closet of introspection, stand before my own thought audiences, and behold with laughing heart all the tragedies and comedies I have enacted. Teach me to look upon all that happens in my life with a pleased, interested attitude, that at the end of each episode, no matter how sad or difficult, I may exclaim, Ah, that was a good show. Full of thrills, suspense, and excitement, I am happy to have seen it, and I have learned much from it for my own benefit. Well, thrills, suspense, and excitement pretty well sums it up for Easter week. Uh, It's hard to imagine sometimes just what that really might have been like. We just get fragments handed down to us through the ages. And I've been kind of playing with pictures of it in in my mind lately because uh, Diksha and I are deeply engaged in arranging the details of the Expanding Light pilgrimage to the Holy Land uh, next year. And uh, having been there before, I'm bringing back to my recollection a lot of the uh, places and the whole procession of Palm Sunday just comes so vividly when you're standing up on the top of the Mount of Olives and see down below you in the pretty near distance the city of the old city of Jerusalem, and you can follow that pathway that on which Jesus rode on the on the donkey, surrounded by the throngs. It's it's really it's really very thrilling and at the same time daunting. And I can't help but every time I hear the story or read the story, I can't help but think, Jesus, don't go there. You know, get off that donkey, get out of Jerusalem, go back to Galilee, no Pharisees there. Uh, you can do all the miracles you want. It'll be cool. You know, and it doesn't seem to work that way. And so it's like I have the same experience when I either read or, or tell the Mahabharata, the great spiritual epic of which Bhagavad Gita is a, is a part. And at one point in the Mahabharata, one of the main characters Yudhisthira succumbs to the temptation to, pay, to play a game of dice, a game of dice that he knows very well is rigged against him and he's going to lose. He doesn't realize perhaps how much he's going to lose, but he's going to lose. And he goes and plays anyway, and it's a tremendous disaster and the catalyst for many other disasters that follow on, on its heels. And I just want to say, maybe this time he won't play. You know, maybe this time through, he'll come to his senses and not just get lost in gambling that he knows he's going to lose, but every time he falls into it. But Jesus didn't fall into this. Jesus jumped in with both feet. You know, he had been, in the preceding years of his ministry, he spent you know, such a large portion of his time up in Galilee, where, as I said, there, there weren't Pharisees there. There wasn't this big uh, cloud of impending doom hanging over him up there. But even then, he was kind of hanging back. He wasn't doing the miracle scene to any 
great extent. And, and when he did, he kind of didn't make it clear that he was behind anything. I, was, I couldn't help but read through the, the book of John in preparation for this, just refreshing my memory. And I, I enjoyed the one scene from the, the, the wedding at Cana where they run out of wine the wedding, and I can just see Jesus' mother kind of elbowing, saying, they've run out of wine. <laughs> and, and, and Jesus saying, so? You know, what does that have to do with me? And she says, well, you know, you could do something. And, if my, and, and, and he said, then, on as in many other occasions, he said, my time has not yet come. In other words, it wasn't time to take off the wraps. But it was his mother, so, so he went ahead and did it anyway. And yet, people didn't know who had done it, as was often the case in, in the uh, Galilee region, or at least it was not so, nearly so public. But when he came into Jerusalem around this time, around the time of Palm Sunday, it's like the wraps were off. And he was doing everything that you sort of always wanted him to do. Uh, He was healing the blind, healing the lame. He was getting in the face of the Pharisees and telling them exactly what hypocrites they were, which they were. And he was proclaiming himself the Son of God, which stirred the pot a little bit. Um, there There were people who bought it and a lot of people who thought it was blasphemy. And of course, just shortly before Palm Sunday, he had uh, done the big one, which was raise Lazarus from the dead, which definitely grabbed a few headlines around Jerusalem. And he was, he was totally, totally un, unveiled himself. And so it was that he, he didn't uh, have a second thought about that procession down the Mount of Olives, this long, gentle slope going down through the Garden of Gethsemane, through a little bitty valley, and then up the other side to the, uh, to the gates of the old city. And he, was, he had, in fact, orchestrated that, which is something I'd forgotten until I went back and read the book of John. He orchestrated it. He said to his disciples, go get, that, go get a donkey, Go get that donkey, in fact, and bring it here. And I'm going to ride on that because he knew that everyone else knew that there was an ancient prophecy that said the great king of Israel was going to come riding a donkey. So here he was riding this donkey in many, many people's minds, fulfilling this prophecy, uh, going down into, into Jerusalem and being hailed by everyone far and wide, and of course he's carrying with him that immense street cred of having raised Lazarus from the dead. And, you know, he was, he was just totally jabbing the Pharisees with this whole scene. These, these people who had for some time been wanting to kill him even before he came to Jerusalem. And he'd been to Jerusalem before and he'd stirred things up before and they wanted to kill him then. Some of them wanted to kill him because, no doubt, of jealousy. Some of them probably legitimately felt he was being 
blasphemous by calling himself the Son of God. And some of them were probably afraid, perhaps not out of jealousy, but out afraid out of his magnetism that he was going to draw more and more and more people to him. And that was definitely going to not go unnoticed by the Romans who were starting to think around this time about the possibility of a revolt coming up. And many people, in fact, hoped that Jesus was going to be the lead revolutionary. And the Pharise- many Pharisees felt that if this happened, if more, so many people gathered around Jesus, the Romans would come in and really lower the boom on the Jews in general. And, of course, that would cause the Pharisees, who had gained a lot of power, to lose that power. They had gained a lot of comfort to possibly lose all that comfort. So they had it in mind that they were going to kill, kill Jesus at the first opportunity. And they'd tried to take him prisoner on other occasions. And somehow, even in public occasions, somehow he just always managed to slip away. The Bible never quite makes it clear, but you get this idea of uh, kind of invisibility, sort of melting into the crowd, and he was gone. But this time, they were determined that they were going to succeed. And furthermore, they were, they were thinking, one of them said to another, we, you know, we're going to have to kill Lazarus too. You know, because as long as Lazarus was around, he was going to be a reminder, a big reminder of, of what Jesus could and had done. So all this was coming to a head with this grand procession down the Mount of Olives and into the city of Jerusalem. And you think, what was it like? What, was, what would be going through Jesus' mind as that happened? Well, it's a little hard to picture what's going through the mind of an avatar, so let's just imagine, kind of put our, putting ourselves in that place for, for a moment. What would be going through our minds? So it was like, it's like you're just an actor in a motion picture. And you are playing your role. And the difference between Jesus doing something like that and one of us doing something like that is that, A, Jesus was very well aware that he was just an actor in a motion picture, whereas some of us might not be. Uh, Just like we might not be aware that we're actors in our own lives. And the other thing is that he knew how the script turned out and that we don't. We tend not to know how our script is going to turn out, but he knew because he was one with the, with the Christ consciousness, a term that causes some confusion for people because they forget that Christ is, is a title. This was not his name. A title meaning that one who had achieved the, the, the state of Christ consciousness, that that was the criterion, Paramahansa Yogananda said, for being called a true master as having achieved oneness with the Christ consciousness. And Swami Kriyananda gave a, a really helpful sort of analogy of what this is. Imagine a painting. That painting is like creation, this world. And the artist who painted that painting, the creator. But if you really spend some time with that painting and try to tune into it and really, really feel that painting, 
you can feel a sense of the consciousness of the artist, at least some of the consciousness of the artist. And that is analogous to how this world is creation itself. There's the creator beyond creation, but the way Paramahansa Yogananda put it, at the heart of every atom of creation is the unmoving consciousness of the creator. And he said, that's the Christ consciousness. That that is part of the pathway back to the state of yoga, back to the state of union that we, in our spiritual growth, we first experience God truly in the form of creation itself. Om, the Om vibration. And it is through Om that we're continual focus on Om, absorption in Om, that we're able to, in time, feel that unmoving presence of the Creator within creation. Feel that Christ consciousness and continuing to absorb ourselves in that eventually, that as like a thread that leads us back to oneness with the Creator beyond creation, our, our true home. And Jesus had done that. Jesus had, at some point in the past, he'd taken care of that in past lives. Paramahansa Gunanda said he was an avatar. He had gotten free in previous lives. He had reached the ultimate and had come back to help other people. And he was, that's why he could say, you know, I and my father are one. He had attained that state of oneness, which some people found inspiring, and some people found threatening, some people found blasphemous, but I don't think very many people ignored it. It's the sort of thing you can't ignore, and someone says it, especially not someone with the power, the magnetism that certainly Jesus must have had, and that he took with him into this grand drama, as I said, jumping in with both feet, the, the drama that had begun to some degree earlier, but with Palm Sunday, it was like the raising of the curtain on the final act. And as he rode into that, into, into the city with all the throngs of people around him, knowing full well that, that those accolades were going to die very quickly, along with his physical body, and who knows, it could have been some of those same people in less than a week who were crying, give us Barabbas. But just because he had that consciousness, because he had attained that state where he knew that he was just an actor in a play, that his true existence was totally outside of the little drama that was going on, he could go through all the hosannas, with an even mind, go through the betrayal with an even mind, through the crucifixion, even through the resurrection. It's just this evenness. I'm just playing this part that God has given me that, that I have completely merged my will into the divine will and there's no greater joy than playing my part in the divine will to its conclusion which came rather dramatically you know, at, the, at the end of this week. And you may think, well, was that it? You know, was that, that the crucifixion? Was that the, the 
that the story? I remember years ago, I was in uh, an old monastery, no longer an active monastery in uh, Florence, Italy. And walking through and seeing the cells of the monks who would live there, and almost every cell, one whole wall was a very realistic-looking, gruesome depiction of the crucifixion. I thought, my goodness, uh, how could I live in a cell like that? How, you know, what, what were these people able to, how were they able to get beyond that gruesome portrayal? Isn't there more than this? And of course, there has to be more than this. Why else would, would uh, Jesus have spent three years at least, who knows exactly what happened before those years when Paramahansa Yogananda and many others said that Jesus was in India and Tibet, not only studying, no doubt, but, but teaching many others. But at least the three years that we know of from the Bible, why would he spend those three years teaching people how to live if all that mattered was his dying on the cross? You know, as Swami Kriyananda put it, why didn't he just get himself nailed up there and get on with it? You know, because there was so much more. There was so much more to the story. There was so much more to our stories. So much more that, that can be done, that, that will be done in, with each one of us. And it just depends on when we get around to it. When we get around to putting out that incredible level of effort, that incredible courage, that incredible selflessness that is ultimately going to help us to leave the small self behind and to merge into Om and ultimately merge into Christ consciousness and merge into the, in the infinite, a, a state that probably most of us can barely conceive of yet is guaranteed to be our destiny. And the question is, how do we go to those states from this, from this place where we are? How can we, how can we go through the experience of our lives, which are almost guaranteed to be a whole lot less dramatic than what Jesus had to go through? But nevertheless, we all have our own dramas. We all certainly will have the dramas of leaving this world, which can be a fairly substantial drama for many of us. How can we go through that with that calmness, with that detachment that he was able to illustrate for all of us? There's only one way, really, and that's to be grounded in a higher reality, is to know for sure that we have a higher reality as our true nature. And the way to know that is to experience it. And the only way to experience it is in deep meditation. And the only, only way to really come to that depth of meditation is to be practicing it, practicing connection, practicing that, that divine relationship all the time. Because when we go through our day outside of our meditations, I like to think, I don't like to think, it's actually it's inconvenient thought, but it certainly comes to me regularly. Uh, this is a preview of your next meditation. 
Whatever you're doing right now is a preview of your next meditation. If you're letting yourself get agitated, agitation's going to come into you as soon as you stop and meditate. If you're letting yourself be lazy, have a lazy meditation. If you're letting yourself connect with God, you're opening the door for that connection to be more and more vivid when you next when you next sit to meditate so that you can begin to experience more and more and more of who you really are. And yet, for most of us, that doesn't happen all the time. In fact, for some of us, it happens hardly at all. You know, we just... And the question becomes, well, am I a hopeless case? You know, is, it, is there just no way that I'm going to experience these things? Happens in the Bhagavad Gita, this conversation between Krishna and his disciple Arjuna. At one point, Krishna has been telling Arjuna about just how great this cosmic consciousness is, how it's how it sends transcendent bliss, its immunity to every pain, every sorrow. It's the treasure beyond all treasures. And Arjuna listens to this and he says, uh, Krishna, you know, I meditate, you know, I really do, but I don't experience any of that. Um, am, am I just, my mind is so restless and chaotic and and powerful and obstinate. It's like trying to master the wind. And what does Krishna say to him? Krishna doesn't say, oh, don't worry, I'll do it for you. And he doesn't say, you're hopeless. He says, yup. <laughs> That's exactly how the mind is. It's fickle, and it's unruly. I love that fickle. You know, it's like, like this mind that really isn't ours. And if you really wonder whether your mind is yours or not, just sit and try to meditate for a while and see whether the mind is fully yours or not. It's fickle and unruly. But then Krishna says, but by yoga practice, by which he means meditation, and dispassion, not getting caught in the drama, not getting caught up in your little role in the drama, whether it's the outward role or even the inward role of the person who's meditating, even that's not really who we are. But by yoga practice and dispassion, the mind can be mastered. And he's going on to say, thus will you attain union with me which is to say, keep trying. Keep trying. That's the only thing we can do. And fortunately, it's the only thing we need to do. Because it's that effort, as unskillful as it seems sometimes, as, as arduous as it seems sometimes, as ungrounded as it can seem sometimes, that is what we can do. And that's all we need to do because it is making the effort continually with a sincerity of our heart that will draw God's grace. And it's not the meditation that's going to take us ultimately to God-realization. Not, it is a vehicle, 
that, can, that makes it possible for us to receive the grace that is going to take us there. And my prayer for all of us as that we get there in this incarnation that we merge into that joy, into that love that's where we really live. God bless you.